The Sunnyside Choir is great. Ha, ha, ha. The Sunnyside <laughs> Choir is great. <laughs> uh, thank you, all choir. <laughs> Not as good of a dancer, I'm sorry. Um, today we are continuing our journey with the gospel of Luke. Uh, we're continuing our journey not only with Luke, but also with Jesus. As Jesus journeys, setting his face toward Jerusalem. Way back in chapter 9, at the beginning of the summer, we began the journey with Jesus to confront this corruption at the heart of his religion. This is a journey Jesus not only is taking into Jerusalem, but a journey Jesus takes into each of our hearts as well. And on his way, as he continues to work in us to regenerate, to rejuvenate, to inspire us, he reveals more and more about the reign of God and the kingdom of heaven. And as we've learned, Jesus often uses parables in his teaching. Parables, you may remember, are short stories that offer a vision of what God's reign on earth can and ought to look like. But parables can be like devilishly tricky to interpret because they force us to look at them not straight on, but look at them slant, to come at them from unexpected directions as they come at us from unexpected directions. And not only this, they also allow for a variety of interpretations. So it's hard to know if we've got it. This morning's second reading is not a parable in the traditional sense, uh, but it, I think, fits to some degree. It shows something about the reign of God. Jesus' actions offer us a different kind of parable in this scripture passage. Our second reading is coming to us from Luke's gospel. This is chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. You can follow along in your bulletins if you'd like, or you can also uh, take your Red Pew Bibles, turning to the New Testament section, page 80 is where it's found. This is Luke 17, 11 through 19. Listen now for God's word to you. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not 10 made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, get up. Go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, be a guide to us by the work of your spirit and by your word. Let us see light in your light. Let us find freedom in your truth. And let us discover peace in your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord, your word made flesh. Amen. It was a few years ago in the before times, uh, uh, before the pandemic, that I had an opportunity to go to the Texas borderlands. 
This is the region of South Texas where the United States borders Mexico. There's a particular culture and ethos among the people of the borderlands. Many of them are fluent, both in English and in Spanish. A number of them can navigate culture on either side of the border. And yet despite this, for many Texans, the borderlands are not a desirable place to live. This is a boundary place, a place uh, that you could think of if you're an academic as a liminal space. If you're maybe a little less academic, but you go fishing sometimes, you can think of this place as brackish water, where salt water and fresh water begin to mix, where you're not quite sure what's going on. This is a boundary area. I share this because I think Jesus in our text this morning is in a boundary area. He's in an area that has the feel of brackish water, not quite salt water, not quite fresh water, the region between Galilee and Samaria. And while it's not necessarily ideal that people tend not to want to live in boundary places, they also tend not to be desirable for whatever reason. In Jesus' day, you had on the one hand, Galilee. This is one of the regions that he was close to. And we hear a lot about Galilee in the scriptures because Jesus grew up there. We don't always consider the fact that Galilee was a bit of a backwater. Galilee was a place where they did not have the religious or cultural sophistication that one might find in a place like Jerusalem, say. And then on the other hand, there was Samaria. We've heard about Samaritans, I'm sure. Um, Many of you know the parable of the good Samaritan. And you may even know that Samaritans and Jews, well, you could say they didn't really get along. There was a deep and abiding, almost hatred you could describe the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Partly because when the Jews returned from exile, as you heard Julian capably read a moment ago, when they returned from exile from Babylon, there was a man named Nehemiah that was working to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and it was the Samaritans who interfered with this. These Samaritans were ethnic cousins to the Jews. They uh, both traced their lineage through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet these Samaritans also, partly because they were so close and yet so far, these Samaritans and the Jews did not get along at all. They held the differing interpretations of the Torah. Uh, the Samaritans intermarried with non-Jews. It was just, it was not good. Many Israelites not only looked down on, on Samaritans, but they would not even speak to them. And many Israelites also looked down on the cultural and religious practices of the region of Galilee. So you have on the one hand Galilee, the backwater place in Judea. You have on the other hand Samaria the hated enemies of Israel. And you have Jesus walking in the region between Samaria and Galilee. I hope you can kind of get a sense for just how strange it was for Jesus to walk on this lonely road. Yeah, he did hail from Galilee. There's some affinity there. But he's not going to encounter any movers and shakers 
here. He's not going to encounter ranking members in the Sanhedrin. He's not going to encounter any exemplars of moral living while he's in these borderlands, in this brackish water. Much like the U.S.-Mexico borderlands in South Texas, this was not desirable property. It was not a desirable place to live around. And so it may come as no surprise that the people he encounters are a colony of 10 lepers. We know leprosy today as a particular sort of disease, a particular sort of disease where you lose feeling in your extremities and therefore don't know if like your hand is on the stove and burning, so you can't react and take it away. In, in those days, leprosy referred to a whole host of skin diseases. If you'd like some light reading, um, I'd encourage you uh, to read Leviticus 13, fun chapter. All 59 verses talk about skin disease. Yeah, I bet you can't wait to go home and read Leviticus 13, right? Um, and yet there's something beautiful about the fact that God cares for our bodies enough to give us direction for how to care for them in Leviticus 13. Uh, a couple important points from that chapter that are helpful for understanding our scripture today. So as I said, leprosy is a whole host of diseases and the one who declared you clean was the priest. Now, the priest is not a medical professional. The priest is not going to tell you how to get better. The priest is just going to look and say, oh, okay, that fits, you know, this checklist for a bad skin disease. You're still not clean. Or no, that's, you know, that's better now. You, you, can, you can be clean. And if you weren't clean, if you were diagnosed with leprosy by the priest, you had to do a few things. You had to wear torn clothes. You had to allow your hair to become disheveled. You had to cover your upper lip and you had to walk around crying out, unclean, unclean. You also couldn't live within cities. You were forced to live in the countryside, in boundary places, like the region between Samaria and Galilee. Now, it may be difficult. You may not have any life experience to go back to in this, but I want you to imagine, if you can, constantly keeping, say, I don't know, six feet of separation between people, maybe wearing a mask, perhaps, to cover your upper lip. I realize, you know, there's, there's really nothing you can go back to to think about this. That'd be different. I know that many of us had to experience this way of living for at least 12 to 24 months. Some of us are continuing to make that standard practice in our households. But if you've not continued living that way, wouldn't it be such a bummer? to have to go back. Wouldn't it be such a bummer to need to do that while also remaining quarantined from your entire family for the rest of your life, or at least until a priest pronounced you clean? These 10 lepers who approached Jesus wandering in the borderlands, goodness, they must have been desperate for healing. They must have yearned to return to the way things were, to be able to go back and live with their families, to live in society. Now, Jesus uh, doesn't outwardly do much for these lepers. He doesn't lay hands on them and say, you're clean. No, he says, how about y'all go back to the priests and show yourselves to them? I wonder what kind of faith 
it must have taken to trek back into civilization, shouting unclean the whole way, bearing the indignity of going back to a doctor, or not even a doctor, a priest, who may look at you like, why are you here again? What kind of faith must it have taken for these lepers to go immediately to the religious professionals on the off chance that they might this time be declared clean? And there's an additional question you may not think about in this text. We're in the region between Galilee and Samaria, so there's an open question as to which priests these lepers should go to. Would this Jewish rabbi expect all these lepers to go see a Jewish priest? Or would maybe a Samaritan priest suffice, even though they may have a different understanding of Torah? If I'm a leper and I'm a Samaritan, could I go see a Samaritan priest? Would that be enough? Maybe this question arose for Jesus' disciples also. And maybe as they were wondering about this, as they were wondering about the logistics of which priests these lepers should go to, suddenly they see one leper leave the crowd, come running back, praising God and falling at the feet of their master. This is strange. To turn back and go to Jesus, it meant losing valuable time running to a priest who could declare you clean. It meant losing valuable time you could be using to get back to your family. And as this former leper returns to Jesus, the other nine are getting like an insurmountable lead. And you got to wait in a line now to see the priest, or you have to go to a priest further out. Uh, this, this leper is, by going back and thanking Jesus, making it take longer for him to get back to family and friends that he must have yearned to see once more. Turning back was a costly decision for this leper. But turning back reveals something about this man. Instead of taking it for granted that he would be blessed by God, this man responded to God's blessing with wondrous, marveling gratitude. Gratitude that required him to come back and to offer thanksgiving to the one who healed him. Now in the Gospel of John, uh, we read this beautiful passage in the first chapter that talks about how Jesus is the word that was with God from the beginning. In chapter 14 of, of the first chapter of John, we read specifically that God's divine word became flesh and dwelt among us. One literal rendering of this passage is that God's word became flesh and tabernacled among us, which I think is such a neat idea. The tabernacle, you may recall, is like the mobile temple that the Israelites used when they were in the wilderness to encounter God. And if God's word truly has tabernacled among us, then, then, then the word of God, Jesus Christ, is this mobile temple among us. And if we can recognize Jesus as the mobile temple, we can also recognize Jesus as the great high priest. And so in some sense, this Samaritan that turns around and returns to Jesus is going to see a priest, is recognizing that the great high priest the one who is God incarnate is right there before him, has healed him. And therefore, he has no need to go find a Samaritan priest or a Jewish priest. He has the word made flesh standing before him. 
And what's so cool about this passage is Jesus pronounces him clean. He says, weren't 10 made clean? All that this leper could have done by running to civilization and standing in line to be seen by a priest, this leper ends up doing by falling at the feet of Jesus. And, and I can almost see the, the gears turning in Luke's head as Luke writes this story. Uh, he's strategically delaying for his hearers, for his first readers, that the man who comes back and offers Thanksgiving, he's strategically delaying the revelation that this man is a Samaritan. I bet that his early hearers, his early readers, as the story was being told to them, imagined a Jewish leper bearing witness to God's word made flesh, to the great high priest, to the, to the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Because there's no way, right, a Samaritan would understand that this man who has healed him is truly the Messiah. Because Samaritans were religious half-breeds, brutes. There's no way. They would have, they, they've got an inferior version of the Jewish faith. And so when Luke delays that this, uh, telling his early hearers that this man is a Samaritan, he's inviting his hearers to wrestle with the really true reality that sometimes the ones we view as outsiders, they're the ones who don't take it for granted that God will bless them. Sometimes those who are outsiders are the ones that can respond to God's blessing with wondrous gratitude because they don't make the assumption that God belongs to them. We're not so different today, I think, than the Israelites were then. We have a bad habit, myself included, of fooling ourselves into thinking that we have a monopoly. We have a corner on God's blessings. And we can render that we however we want to. Sometimes we is Sunnyside Presbyterian Church where we think that we're uniquely positioned to get blessings from God. Sometimes that we is Presbyterians or Reformed Christians generally that we got it right. You know, sometimes that we as Protestants, we have our friends, the Roman Catholics up the road at Notre Dame. And sometimes, you know, we think that we've got it and we are somehow more eligible for the blessings of God. We might even think American Christians more generally are more eligible for God's blessings. But instead of assuming that God is going to bless us, our role as followers of Jesus is to respond to God's blessings wherever they may be found with wondrous gratitude. Even if that means following Jesus Christ and the blessings he offers into the borderlands, into no man's land between Samaria, the enemy, and Galilee, those who are a backwater religiously and culturally even if that means learning from and rejoicing with a Samaritan. This is what we're called to do as people of faith. And one more thing uh, before we wrap up the message this morning. It's interesting. It seems like there's a difference in this passage between being cured of a disease on the one hand and being made well on the other hand. I wonder if you caught that. All 10 lepers were cured from their disease. As Jesus said, weren't 10 made clean? 
But it's, it's only the one who returned to fall at Jesus' feet who is said to have been made well. I wonder if being cured from a disease is a primarily physical phenomenon. I mean, those of you who have struggled with your body not doing what you wish it would do, with, with needing medical interventions, you know that there's more to the healing process than just a bodily fix. You know that being made well is more than just eliminating this issue with your body. There's a deeper healing that can happen. Being made well feels much more holistic than simply being cured. Being made well is when we find hope not just for our bodies, our physical flesh, but also our minds, our hearts, our very souls. Being made well is when we experience true shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace, for, for things the way they ought to be, for true human flourishing. In fact, the Greek word that's rendered in this text as made well can also refer to salvation. Isn't that neat? And now while this narrative isn't a parable, it does reveal something about God's reign. God's reign is not going to be constrained to a certain people group, to a certain culture. As we saw last week during World Communion Sunday, pretty clearly, we can praise God in many different languages and cultures. And in doing so, it is the same God who is praised. So instead of assuming that God will only bless us and those who are like us, our role as followers of Jesus Christ is to see where God's blessings are, wherever they are, and rejoice with wondrous gratitude. Returning to my time in the U.S.-Mexico border in the South Texas borderlands, um, not only were the tacos and tamales like the best I've ever had, if you go there, try them, they're great, but there was also a keen sense among those that I got to interact with that God was at work in a unique and particular way in this in-between space. Isn't that where God tends to show up? I wonder if the borderlands, along with other in-between spaces, tend to be the places that the work of God is most clearly evident. The places that we can see the blessings and mercy of God and give thanks with wondrous gratitude instead of assuming that they may come to us. These are the places that we encounter those who may not appear at first to be moral exemplars or the movers and shakers, but these are the ones in whom the spirit of God resides in a unique and special way. May we, in our journeys, encounter Jesus in these in-between spaces, ministering to and blessing people who are unlike us, even people who are our enemies. May we return to the one who has healed us, made us well, to give thanks to Jesus for the many blessings he's shared with us instead of rushing to do the next thing on our to-do list. And may we rejoice and be glad at the opportunities to be made well, body and soul, by the word of God who was made flesh and who tabernacled among us. May it be so now and always. Amen.